Art for the Heart through shamanic healing, art therapy, and classes since 1985. More information is available at www.13thmooncenter.net, all spelled out, or 589-3063. The time is 10.01, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, where the next program coming up is Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. In the rush for the new, it's instructive to take stock and see what might be lost. Take apples. Did you know that in the 1850s there were 10,000 varieties or more in Maine alone? We have uniform color and shape in today's store-bought apples, but it seems like we might just be missing a little variety. And here in the studio, we can have some folks who will help us um, think about um, apples and the heritage of food. And I'm glad to welcome back some folks. Um, Josh Joshua Torrance from the Woodlawn Museum. Welcome to you, Josh. Thank you, Lauren. And then Katie Friedman of Healthy Acadia. Hi, Ron. Welcome back. And then welcoming also Todd Little Seabold from College of the Atlantic. Welcome to you, Todd. Thanks, Ron. Um, perhaps each of you could um, give us a little thumbnail sketch of, um, of yourselves and your organization so listeners will have some kind of context. Uh, Josh, uh, give us a little bit of background on yourself and the Woodlawn Museum. Sure. Hi. Um, well, I'm Joshua Torrance. I'm the director of Woodlawn, and uh, a post I've held for 11 years, uh, and I've lived here in, in the greater Ellsworth area for 11 years. Woodlawn is a 180-acre historic estate um, with wonderful trails and uh, wonderful gardens and a croquet court. Apple trees? Apple trees. <laughs> wonderful historic house, but what people don't necessarily always understand or, or think of, Woodlawn at one point was a working farm. Mm. Uh, and in the last several years, um, we've done some research, uh, had a cultural landscape report done that has documented um, how much of a farm Woodlawn was indeed at one point. And so a few years ago, kind of looking out into the fields, we were thinking to ourselves, we have these wonderful fields surrounding Woodlawn. Maybe we could do something more imaginative with them uh, and perhaps uh, get back into the, the farming uh, realm, if you will. And so um, we've been kind of puzzling how we can get into sustainable agriculture and, and bring back that part of the Woodlawn heritage. Mm, great. Well, we'll come back to you in, in a minute. Uh, Katie Friedman from Healthy Acadia, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this work? And I think you've had a long interest in, in local foods. I have. Um, you'll have to excuse my voice and the occasional coughing. I'm a little under the weather today, but um, I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm a College of the Atlantic graduate, and um, in my studies there, I, I got really interested in um, sustainable food systems and, um, and agriculture. And um, since I graduated, I've been pursuing that field both as a volunteer and through my work with Healthy Acadia. 
Um, and now um, I'm fortunate to be able to devote my full-time position to um, um, food farms and nutrition, and I'm the coordinator of those programs for Healthy Acadia, um, which I'm very happy to be doing now. Um, we're a community health coalition. We serve all of Hancock County, and um, we provide um, support to organizations um, and individuals, and uh, we provide direct programming to um, create um, lasting community change to um, um, promote health and to uh, make healthy choices the easier choices throughout our communities. And um, I'm happy to be here. Great. Thanks. And Todd, how about you? Um, I teach at the College of the Atlantic. M many people know a small liberal arts uh, college that focuses on human ecology in Bar Harbor. Uh, I've been here for about 15 years. Um, I'm trained as a Latin Americanist, but I'm the history department at the college, uh, so I teach a little bit of everything. And um, I've become interested, uh, historically done a lot of work on agrarian change in Latin America, um, and so became more and more interested in how to connect my interests in that uh, to the ability for students to do local research uh, and really connect to the communities around them so they could understand the sort of uh, what's, uh, what this place might have looked like 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Uh, and I really just sort of stumbled across apples as what uh, sort of a hook, a way of telling this local story so that we could begin to um, understand what it was like to live on the coast of Maine 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, and that has given rise to working with uh, Josh and with Katie on the Down East Food Heritage Collaborative to basically try to connect research to community outreach and education. Um, and that's been really, really fun because uh, the stories, for me, history is all about stories. And the stories that people have and the things that they want to know about the apples that they have, um, to me, is a really powerful cultural resource. You're talking about current, current people who yeah. come up to you and say, what's this apple? Yeah. yeah. And also just, I think, what people know that they're the stewards when they have an old apple tree in their yard. They know they're stewards of something really significant. Um, and they want to reconnect to those stories. <laughs> Um, as and I'm f fascinated particularly by many of the folks here who are connected to that farming and fishing heritage and food in particular in this area because that's really um, one of the dimensions of local uh, culture that I think is underappreciated. Mm. What do you suppose is so uh, iconic about apples? Um, uh, Katie, I think of Healthy Acadia, and I don't know if you've got it in your, your symbol, but you know the, the picture of an apple is related to health. It is an iconic health symbol, and it's something that people can, um, something that really draws people in. It's this charismatic fruit, as we've described it as a group. Um, and it, um, I think, and part of that is, you know, its historical re relevance and the fact that you could be, you know, plucking an apple off of a tree that's 100 or 200 years old. And, you know, just thinking about um, the longevity of that, you know, that tree itself and um, and, and the historical significance that it carries. And um, in the work that we do at, at Healthy Acadia through our Farm to School program, which is um, one of the programs that I coordinate in Hancock County, um, uh, we've, we've connected to the, um, we've connected children to the apple and it's something that is very easy for, for kids to get excited about. We've been doing school programs um, in elementary schools in Hancock and Washington counties, and um, it's it's um, very easy to get them excited and to really engage them. It, we, we've done taste testings and and um, and lessons, and uh, I can talk about that a little bit more mm -hmm. later. But um, it's something that uh, that that 
kids and I think people of all ages are really drawn to. Maybe it's because um, f uh, fruit, um, uh, vegetables are kind of below the ground in many cases, mm -hmm. but fruit is above the ground and we can see it. Um, Josh, what, what did you discover as you began to look at Woodlawn as a historic um, uh, property um, about um, fruit trees and apple trees in particular? Well, we, we always knew there were apple trees on the property, um, and there are a few uh, heirloom trees that survive today. Uh, as part of our research, we discovered that in the 1830s, John Black um, was regularly trying to experiment with new types of apple trees. And in the records, it's apparent that at one point he bought 50-some apple trees and planted them on the property. 50 trees. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we don't have 50 now, but it gets you thinking, where were they? And uh, what was he doing of all these apples? And th Todd and his uh, student, Jill Pikett, who was an intern at Woodlawn this summer, um, through their research, discovered that, well, he was making cider. And at one point, John Black was actually trying to sell his cider in China. Uh, and that is really kind of an amazing story, an amazing thing to think about, uh, that here's John Black on the coast of Maine in the 1830s and 40s, growing apples, experimenting with apples. And I mean, he didn't need to sell cider in China. I mean, he, he had plenty of other business interests that kept him happy and engaged. But here he is trying to sell <laughs> cider in China. I mean, that's really amazing. So it, it reminds us of how... Um, through our history, we've been connected to a broader world. Mm -hmm. And I think the apple helps us understand that in a sense. And, and Todd, apples didn't originate here. They originated closer to China than here. Yeah, the um, apple really takes a very slow uh, journey to the west and to the east, ironically. Uh, they come from a, the area of Kazakhstan known as the Tianxin and they're basically forests of apples, if one can imagine that. We've, we've thought briefly about if we could create an apple forest at one of our farms on the island just to sort of see what that might be like. But these pictures are, you know, imagine a forest of oaks where you just replace those with apples and apricot trees. Um, and they slowly move east into China, actually, uh, and west into uh, eventually Persia, Greece, Rome. The Romans bring them to France and to England and the rest of... Uh, of uh, the Roman Empire, and then they're brought to the um, to the Americas first by the Spaniards um, to Mexico and, and regions there, as well as the Spaniards bring other fruit with them, many of the Mediterranean fruits, uh, and then the English and French and Dutch, when they arrive a uh, hundred years later, begin to bring apples almost immediately, and so there are uh, accounts in Jamestown, accounts in, accounts in Plymouth, accounts in New Amsterdam, accounts in, in Quebec. Uh, where they, one of the first things they bring with them are the apples. Um, though it's interesting, one of the things I think most people don't appreciate is that, uh, at least in early America, when they introduce the apples, most apples are for drinking. Hmm. Um, so 80, 80, 85, 90% of apples would have been made into cider and fermented, either for hard cider or for, hard, for vinegar, cider vinegar. It was the, basically the, their major food preservation in addition to salt. So it was a, it was a necessity. Um, apples were basically the raw ingredient of um, most of their preserved foods, and most of their vegetables after the harvest were preserved with either vinegar or salt. So it was a necessity, and there's a slow evolution. Maine's particularly fascinating because um, and this is one of the things that we're interested in with the collaborative and I'm particularly interested in as a historian. Um, Maine is the shock zone between the French world and the British world, and so um, I'm very curious uh, about 
for example, the Iroquois Indians very quickly bring uh, apples into northern New York long before Europeans arrive there. And so when the British arrive uh, 100 years later, they find that the Iroquois have apple trees all over the place. Mm. Uh, the Cherokee were the same. Cherokee had large orchards uh, in, their, in their territories. Um, and so w- for 100, 150 years, really, before Maine settled um, definitively in the 1760s and, and such, um, there are some British settlements in the south, French settlements and squatters throughout the down east region, because it's basically a no man's land. But I, I think it's a very interesting example of sort of a, a different cultures of agriculture, indigenous, French, British, that sort of seem to mix here. Um, and there's even a question in my mind about whether the Basques and early fishermen brought uh, apples to the outer islands that they were using for flaking fish early mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So it's a particularly interesting place. And um, I think if we can begin to tell that story, um, we can start to sort of understand more fully. For example, Castine, I believe, could have some of the oldest apples in um, in New England uh, because the French are there quite early. There's some uh, over in Fernald Point potentially. So those Norwich Walk, the other French sites are very interesting because they're places that um, have a long, long history of this kind of stuff. And as you said, those trees, uh, and Katie was saying this as well, those trees persist in the land and your potatoes and your beans just disappear. But here's this, we've think we found on the island a tree. Mount Desert Island. Yeah, on Mount Desert Island, sorry. Um, a tree that could have been planted in 1797 by uh, Marie-Thérèse de the the original grantee for the island, mm. sitting in a in her garden. <laughs> You're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about celebrating food heritage in Down East Maine, and our guests include Todd Little-Seabold from College of Atlantic, who you've just heard from, Katie Friedman from Healthy Acadia, and Josh Joshua Torrance from Woodlot, the Woodlawn Museum, the Black House. Um, this notion of food heritage, each of you are coming at it from a little slightly different point of view. How would each of you define you know, food heritage. What what would you say, Josh? How would you come at it as a as a definition or a, a concept? Well, um, for 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 Woodlawn or for me, for, I think of food heritage as sort of the, um, uh, in particular, relating it to the agricultural heritage of our area. Because, you know, as I've said, Woodlawn's had this interest in sort of the de- developing and understanding uh, the the farming aspect of Woodlawn. Um, so that perhaps we could reintroduce that to the property. And uh, in our work in sort of testing the grounds of that with our farmer's market, for example, um, you hear all these stories about foods that people have had in the past and people have enjoyed, and you also hear these wonderful stories about farming. And when I first came and thought of Woodlawn and understand uh, this area, farming wasn't thought to be all that important. Well, with the research that Todd has done and, uh, others have done, you know, you suddenly realize that, you know, this area was very rich in farming, um, very rich in the types of foods that they that were available. And the idea for, for me with this food heritage project or this concept is, you know, how do you understand that history so that we can support a return to locally based and produced foods? You know, what do we need to learn from the past so that we can uh, do a good job today of, of perhaps becoming more reliant on locally grown and supported food, and how do how do farmers today um, learn from the past to 
uh, provide us with those foods now. So the notion that, that um, we know from historical records that Maine fed itself and exported food, now we're generally a food importer, but we could um, return to that concept of, oh, we could grow our own food. And I think apples is, is probably one of those places where we already could um, supply the state of Maine with apples with the current production. Yeah, using sort of an applied historical research. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times we, um, we, we, we want to explore those stories because they're, they feel good and they're interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting to think of the past. But for, for I think for all of us around this table, the, the, the concept of history is, uh, the importance of history is to apply it and to be mm -hmm. able to learn from it and be able to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in this case, it's the, the farming heritage of, of our area that we want to learn from and use. We want to apply that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Katie, you've, you've had some great experience through Healthy Acadia of involving um, youngsters in, in this. Um, what have you done and what have been some of their reactions when you've um, pressed some apples? Sure. Um, so the Apple Project got started um, in Washington County last fall, and I think we're going to hear from Regina a little bit later, and we'll hear more about what, what she did and what, what's ongoing up there. Um, so I, I kind of adopted it for Hancock County this year, and um, I worked with four schools this year, um, the Adams School in Castine, the Miles Lane School in Bucksport, um, the Pematic Elementary School in Southwest Harbor, and um, the Surrey Elementary School. And... Um, and, and basically, I would go into the classroom and do a, a lesson to start off with, and that, that included a taste testing, and I tried to bring in um, two or three different um, heritage varieties of apples. I was really looking for apples that the, that the kids most likely would have never seen before. Um, and, um, you know, I would start off by asking them to name some varieties of apples, and we'd get the, you know, standard Red Delicious, Granny Smith, Pink Lady, um, Honeycrisp, those kinds of things. Those are available in supermarkets, but they weren't necessarily Maine-based um, products. Right. And, um, and then I'd ask them if, if they'd ever heard of a snow apple or um, a, a wolf river or, um, or some of the other varieties that I had, I had picked up to bring into the classrooms. And um, we'd do a tasting, and I'd ask them to describe it and, you know, what, what were the qualities, how was it different than other apples they'd tasted, and those kinds of things. And then I'd give kind of a historical lesson about where apples came from and how they were used, a lot of what Todd was describing, um, to kind of give them a sense of, you know, the importance of apples throughout history and how they came to North America. And, um, um, and then we'd, we would also discuss kind of the biology and genetics of the apple tree and how they're, how they're reproduced and those kinds of things. Um, and then I'd come back to, and then I, I, we would conclude the lesson by asking students to gather apples um, from from trees, from their own yards, from their grandparents' yards, from their neighborhoods, anywhere that they could, um, to bring in apples for the following week. That we would follow up with a, a hands-on apple cider pressing, um, and um, that was probably the most exciting part for most of the kids. They'd they'd bring in the apples that they had gathered, and then we would press them into cider, and they'd all get a turn to crank the press and um, um, and then taste the cider. Um, and that was very exciting. I could imagine that that students um, who perhaps have never participated in in the process of taking food from its raw state to some kind of product mm -hmm. um, that we can use, they've probably never done that. And you're bringing that um, that very visceral experience to them. And what were some of the reactions? Do you remember um, any of the what people what what those youngsters uh, thought or what they got out of those lessons? Well, it was really interesting. Um, a suggestion that I took from Regina was to um, set up the press 
and then tell the kids, so this is an apple cider press. I'd like you to tell me how it works. Mm. And it was really interesting to see how quickly, because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a fairly straightforward but still complicated um, apparatus, um, especially for, you know, fifth graders um, to really understand. But they, they got it, you know, pretty quickly. You know, the apple goes in there, and then we're going to grind it, and it's going to go in the basket, and then we're going to mm. crush it, and we're going to have the cider coming out the bottom. And um, so it was, I think it was a little bit intuitive, and, um, and they, were, they were very drawn to it. Um, and, you know, we would, <laughs> you know, the kids would be crowding in on the press and, um, and we'd have, you know, with the help of the teachers who were assisting, you know, we'd have to keep kind of asking <laughs> them to back, back away so, right. that the, the, so that the kids who were having their turn would have enough mm. room and not be, you know, throwing an elbow in someone else's <laughs> face. Um, so the, it was, it was very, um, uh, they got really engaged and, mm. and all of the kids, uh, pretty much universally, there weren't any. Um, any kids who didn't show an interest, you know, mm-hmm. everybody wanted to turn, everybody wanted to taste the cider, um, and it was something that they could all be involved in. Great. Well, let's go now to Regina Grobrabach um, from Washington County, and welcome to Talk of the Towns, Regina. Thank you, you, Ron. Great. Great to, that you can be with us this morning. Um, I'm very pleased to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. We've given each of the other guests a, a chance to um, do a thumbnail sketch of themselves and how, um, how you got started in this, in this work around food. I think you've had a long interest in, in food and agriculture. I certainly have, Ron, and you were there on some of the front lines <laughs> when I was doing agriculture down in Hancock County, working for the Ag Viability Act through the Soil and Water Conservation <laughs> District, my history in agriculture is long and varied, and it ranges from marketing organic produce to being a farmer in both Hancock and Waldo County, and then moving to Washington County, coming back to agriculture after a bit of a hiatus, and I was doing um, organic farm inspection, um, uh, organic farm inspections, and then when I heard about this uh, farm to school workshop being held in. Um, in um, East Matrias, Washington County, I said, hmm, this looks like an interesting thing, and a number of my farm friends were encouraging me to attend. And I think within six months, I was doing work, gathering, uh, doing interviews at schools with the uh, food service directors. And in January of 2009, I began as the Washington County Farm to School Coordinator. Great. And what a great concept that we um, get um, schools to be thinking about. Where do they get the food that they prepare for students and thinking, oh, maybe we can get some of that from local farms? Mm-hmm. It's been really exciting to see how many cooks are really interested in making that happen. There's so many obstacles for them, but... Even within that, there, there is a lot of interest, and it's been a really exciting position for me. Um, and I'm willing to be very patient and work slowly with everyone. Sounds like um, a good um, farmer. <laughs> that, the planting of the seeds and, and then nurturing the growth. Um, tell, us, right. tell us about the Perry Harvest Fair. That was one of the things that was connected to this, this collaboration um, around uh, food heritage in Down East Maine, the, the partners including uh, the Woodline Museum and Healthy Acadia. Um, that's how you come in. You're working with Healthy Acadia in the Farm to School program and, and College of Lanark. How, how did the the Perry Harvest Fair fit into all of this? Well, the Perry Harvest Fair fits in. I was looking, when I first started doing the Apple Project in 2010, the first, uh, in the fall of 2010, with funding from the Maine Coast Heritage Trust, I had long dreamed of there being some sort of a festival, a place where in the fall we could really have a, a more intense focus around 
this whole harvest of apples. And I wasn't even sure when I was doing, when I was thinking through how to make the Apple Project work, whether a festival was the best way to do it and just have a bunch of schools come to this festival. And as it turned out, it made sense for me to go to all of the schools with a small press. The Perry Harvest Fair has had a long history of, it's been around for about 30 years, and they used to do cider pressing at the fair. And I don't believe it's been done in the last 10 or 15 years. So when I was searching around for another Washington County venue that was small and would give me good visibility, the Perry Harvest Fair just seemed like a perfect fit. And I talked, spoke with um, the two coordinators, uh, Carol Bryan and Ellen Brown, up in Perry, and they were both very excited about having uh, Apple Pressing back. We brought Apple, um, we brought the press there. We brought the 60 varieties of apples, uh, heritage apple varieties as a display. I had maps, the 1881 maps from the, uh, um, there's a journal that we have here that, that has all these old maps, and I put those up so that we could look at where some of the apple trees could be in the county. Um, and as it turned out, we had a very rainy day. <laughs> we were just drenched as um, Todd knows, he showed up with a couple of, uh, three or four interns from COA. But it was a wonderful event, and as uh, we all saw, we're very hardy folk, and we all turned out just the same. <laughs> Great. And, and as you have done both the school-based projects and, and this um, uh, kind of more public event at the Perry Harvest uh, Fair, what were some of the reactions of people? Um, what, what kind of, uh, um, what did they think and feel? What I love is the range of interest in the apples and in apple pressing and in identification of the old varieties because I can get little kids wanting to know how the press is working to an older gentleman holding three or four apples that he's been wondering what they are for the last 30 years. <laughs> and so the, the range of interest is, is broad and varied and, and deep. And one of the things that's exciting about apples, I find, is that um, because it brings that historical piece to the schools, it also can get so many generations involved. So it's something that Washington County residents are very proud of, their heritage. And I feel like that's a piece that um, helps me to connect with them better mm. when we start talking about that history. And it's not just any history, it's their history. Oh, that's great. That's great. And what are your hopes for, for this kind of work in Washington County? Is it different, do you suppose, than uh, you mentioned this kind of deep pride in, in Washington County? Is that different than you've found in other parts of, of uh, the state that you've worked in? No, and fostering more of that. It is, it is very similar. I think fostering that pride and bringing it out and sharing it with all of us so that we all have a sense of that heritage that is available to us all, that helps us to feel connected in a community and helps us all make the community more vibrant mm. as a result. Great. Well, good luck with, with the work that you're doing, and um, come and visit. Will do. Thanks, Ron. Thanks. That's Regina Grobovac of Washington County with the Healthy Acadia uh, Farm to School program. Um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. I wanted to remind um, listeners that um, we're going to have open up our phone lines in just a minute, but you also have the opportunity to, to pledge your support for programs like Talk of the Towns and, and the fine music and, and public affairs programs throughout the, the uh, day and the week. And uh, you can do that, if you'd like, by calling one 800 
643-6273 and pledging your support. In the studio with us are Joshua Torrance from the Woodlawn Museum, Katie Friedman of Healthy Acadia, and Todd Little-Siebold of College of Atlantic. We're talking about celebrating food heritage in Down East Maine, and um, I guess the, the next question is that is, um, you put on an event um, kind of parallel to, to uh, Regina's work in, in Washington County. Um, you used the whole week of, of early October to talk about apples. What were some of the events um, who would like to start with events? Uh, Joshua, a lot of them were based at the Woodlawn um, <coughs> um, Museum. Well, yeah, we um, kind of st uh, started the, the Woodlawn end of the events on uh, Friday with a, a keynote speech by Peter Hatch, who's director of grounds and gardens at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Mm. And it was a really wonderful uh, uh, presentation. Uh, you know, I think what was uh, really stood out in my mind uh, with, with, with Peter's talk was uh, the talk itself was phenomenal, but the number of people who came. Mm. I mean, we, we filled a tent, uh, close to 100 people, who came to hear about apples. Mm. Uh, and mm. that's pretty neat, you mm -hmm. know. Um, it reminded me just uh, last year's sort of seminar that we did was on stone walls. Uh, again, a connection to our agricultural roots. And people are really thirsty to, whether it's heirloom apple trees, stone walls, uh, who knows what's next for this collaborative, but I think people are thirsty to hear about the agricultural roots of this area. Mm -hmm. <coughs> How about you, Todd? What were some of the, your impressions from some of the speakers? You were a speaker and talked about history, uh, the history of uh, the main apple, but what are some of, some of your other impressions? Well, the, I think the, um, we were very lucky to um, get funding from the Maine Community Foundation for this event and also from uh, Maine Coast Heritage Trust and therefore we're able to bring in Peter who has a wonderful book called The Fruit and Fruit Trees of Monticello mm. which anybody who's interested in uh, particularly in horticulture should read because it basically talks about the history of early American horticulture looking at it through the lens of Monticello and for me it was super exciting to have Peter at Monticello uh, coming from Monticello to <coughs> Woodlawn which are basically analogous sorts of places um, sort of large uh, manor houses, sort of gentlemen's farmers, but also very curious, part of the Enlightenment spirit. So that was really fun because you could see uh, through his work in Monticello so some of what was going on with John Black and what John Black imagined, uh, how he imagined his world. Um, then we also had Ben Watson who came to speak from, uh, he's a publisher at Chelsea Green and has written about hard cider, the history of hard cider. And then uh, John Bunker from Fedco Trees, um, who's really the preeminent expert on, really on New England apples, though Maine apples has been his, his passion for 35 years. And this is, was great for me because I have a class on the history of agriculture, brought my students to that, but also just the range of people who came. And as I said to Katie and, and Josh, to see all these people that uh, are interested in the same thing, all these different generational um, intergenerational uh, conversations that were taking place and people, we probably had 30 or 40 people bring apples and say, what's this apple? What's it from? Blah, blah. And so that was really exciting. And in fact, I have a, I have a little bit of a question left from that event. There was somebody from Surrey. We were talking about a very famous apple from Monticello called the Tolliver apple. Um, that's sort of the holy grail of ancient fruits in America <laughs> uh, that, that some people think they found, other people d doubt they found it. 
And somebody from Surrey said, oh, we have the Tolliver apple over in Surrey. And I was like, really? <laughs> but they didn't come up and tell me where. So if anybody knows out there where the Tolliver apple, and that's sort of the lead, the hook of these sorts of things. We had people who came forward and said, oh, well, there's this great president apple down in Penobscot. And one of my students immediately went down and found the tree and took it to John Bunker for identification. Took an apple, not the whole tree. Yeah, took an apple, sorry. <laughs> um, and so the sort of getting people involved in the hunt for the history, because again, from my perspective, it's about how people appreciate what's around them. Um, and seeing these old relic orchards, and for me, again, imagining at Woodlawn, the 50 trees that they had and sort of saying, where were they? And we have gone through and looked at some of what was going on there and um, how, how he, John Black, was bringing apples up from Boston in eight, uh, 1809, 1822. We know he was bringing Baldwin apples up and russet apples and cider apples. And now we just have an, a whole series of new questions, um, both from the people who came and said, what, you know, what are these trees? Um, you know, what are these fruit that we have from all over down East Maine? And that was really, really mm. wonderful to see. And I think one of the things that I really appreciated as well was um, we had a guy uh, from Brewer, Don Johnson, who has 150 apple trees, mm. apple varieties on an acre and a half in Brewer. And he just goes around and he came and set up a tasting for people. And I think the revelation for people when they have a snow apple or a russet or one of these old varieties, and I think the real, really fascinating question, why can't I get this? This was like the common heritage. Anybody could just walk down into Center of Ellsworth or Bucksport or... Uh, Castine and get these great apples, and now we get okay apples. Right? <laughs> maybe maybe some of our listeners have got some questions or comments as we talk about celebrating food heritage in Down East Maine. They can call if they would like at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. That's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight or locally at four six nine zero five zero zero. We'd love to have your calls as we talk about apples um, as one example of the food heritage in in Down East Maine. Um, uh, Katie, as you think about um, s- some of the, the the students, can you imagine them going back and asking their parents to plant an apple tree or or wh- what would you imagine coming out of some of your workshops some some of those young youngsters? Well, one of our ongoing goals is to really, you know, inspire, um, inspire an interest in um, local foods and, and children's own um, food heritage and ability to access foods locally that um, can nourish them and while also kind of stimulating them intellectually as they grow. Um, and so, um, you know, based on the, the interest, there's always in, in every class, there's always a few students that you can tell are beyond interested. They're really excited. You know, they want to answer every question. Um, they, they know about trees. They're the first ones to volunteer their stories when they bring in the apples. And, um, and so for those students in particular, I can certainly see an interest in, you know, really, you know, planting their own trees and, um, and bringing that forward. And um, I would love to see, I would love to see that. Um, we, we really want to, um, you know, continually in, in varied ways encourage kids to, you know, eat healthier and to understand where their food comes from and why it's important to understand that. Um, and and this, is a, this is a big part of that. Well, let's go to our phone lines and see what questions or comments our listeners are giving us this morning. You can call as well, 1-866-625-9378. Let's take our first call. If you'd identify yourself by first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, my name is Marilyn. I'm calling from Fairfield. Um, great conversation about apples. My um, 
business is apples. I own two orchards in Maine and have done this for almost 40 years. Back in 73, when we bought the farm, we decided to grow antique varieties. We grafted hundreds of the old varieties, um, which was we thought would be booming. But there was a real drought of interest in it during that time, and it's coming back, and it's wonderful to hear mm. people talk about these, like the Tallman Sweets and the Golden Russets and the, all the different kinds of northern spies. I think we've got 45 varieties which are now becoming commercially viable because people are buying them mm. and liking them. And so um, tell us the name of your orchard so people can find you if they, if they choose to. Well, we have two. Um, the apple farm is in Fairfield, and that's our home orchard. That's where we've done the majority of the grafting, things like winter bananas. When we bought the farm, there was one branch of one tree, hmm. winter bananas. And what's now that? Now we have hundreds. That's a, that's a type of apple? Yeah. It's a beautiful. And does it taste, taste like bananas? Not, well, if you oh. use your imagination, oh, it okay. does. <laughs> it's yellow. Uh -huh. um, but we did it because we thought that it, we had heard in the old days that people liked to use it for cider. Mm. Um, so we grafted them, and they're just gorgeous apples. I never get to press them because they're mm. so beautiful that people buy them for the, the beauty of them. And they do taste good. So it sounds like you had some challenges. Um, the market You were ahead of the market. We um, were ahead of the market, and it's caught up now. It's been really fun because our trees are fully mature now. We have acres of fully mature antique varieties, um, some of which, um, as you've talked about, John Bunker. John um, has identified one of our varieties as perhaps um, an old, unnamed, or named variety, but we call it Grey Pear Maine. Hmm. Um, it's been fun to discover the varieties, discover the taste. And, of course, we do have a cider press, so we can make blends, our own blends as well, of different kinds of apples. And we've done school tours. We've done tours forever. And when the schools start dropping um, the budget, they don't drop our tours. Oh, that's great. They still bring the kids. We still have busloads of kids come out here for tours. It's wonderful. Oh, that's great. Marilyn, thanks so much for your call this morning. And good, good luck with your work. I'm going to take one more call, and then we'll get some comments from our guests. Go ahead with your comment. Um, give us your first name and where you're calling from, please. Yes, hi. My name is Maggie, and I'm calling from Rockland. Um, one of the joys in this family is to go out uh, in the fall and without trespassing. <laughs> good. <laughs> Usually. Um, no, without trespassing, um, go and um, gather fells mm. from a host of, of apple trees uh, in the state um, don't travel the whole state, but, you know, it's, it's uh, go about 20 miles out and, and, um, and sample and wonder at the apples. Well, this has led to trying to find information about the apples, and it's kind of difficult to give you names of books, but I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> These are available through interlibrary loan, mm. if you can't buy them. Um, there's a book, um, All About Apples, by Alice A. Martin, 1976. That's a wealth of information. Easy to read, you know, interesting, just engaging. Then there's Apples, 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 by Elizabeth <coughs> Helfman, H-E-L-F-M-A-N. That was from 1977, also completely engaging. Then if you really want to go for the gold, <laughs> there is the um, Bible of Apples, the Apples of New York, uh, which came from the State of New York Department of Agriculture, 
um, by S.A. Beach, B-E-E-C-H, um, Booth and Taylor, two volumes, 1903. Hmm. Just um, sometimes more than you feel you need to know about apples, but <laughs> um, unless you're a scientist, I take that back. There's nothing in, in any of these books that isn't uh, accessible, and it really just makes it so much more intriguing. But the bottom line is to get out and find them and taste them and enjoy them. And thank you very much for working on getting apples. Great. Thank you so much, Maggie, for your call. Comments uh, from, from our guests, uh, well, Joshua you know, Torrance first. And it was just interesting. On the Saturday of the festival, we had um, speakers, of course, but we also had concurrent children's activities, and uh, which were phenomenal, thanks to the, the work of Katie and Healthy Acadia. My kids, in particular, really had a lot of fun. And the next day, um, we, we had the farmer's market and, and, and all that, and we were doing an apple pie contest. Well, my kids, after coming up to the apple pie contest, my children and my wife, as I was kind of wrapping up, went home and walked on our road. And I get when I got home, they had found probably 10 different kinds of apples just walking up and down our road. And it really was, a, I think, testament to the power of, of history, in a sense, that suddenly they were out looking for apples. And, you know, I know myself, uh, when I'm out on the roads, suddenly I'm looking for apples now. I never looked for apple trees before. It's like stone walls when we're right. after doing our stone wall project. Suddenly, you know, it, 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 you're out looking for these things. So what's fascinating about a project like the Apple Project or the Stone Walls or other projects that this collaborative might do is it makes you more aware of your surroundings. Mm. Um, so th the power of history to make you more aware of where you are now. Great. That's a really powerful and, and intriguing lessening concept to think about. But, you know, I loved that. I came home Sunday there's night and there were 10 different, and pears, uh, mm. Todd lives right by me. So there's pear trees too, Todd, right? <laughs> yes, I know, right I down. know. <laughs> you saw them. <laughs> Todd, some brief comments and we've got one more caller, I believe. Yeah, really quickly. Um, so just in response to Marilyn, uh, Marilyn, it make, might make you happy to know that I have about 20 pounds of your golden russets at my home, and they're my children's favorite apples. So uh, I can't encourage uh, listeners enough to run down to the apple farm or to Lakeside Orchard uh, and stock up because it is the best. These are the best fruit that you'll get anywhere in the state of Maine. Uh, also, Five Star Orchard down in Brooklyn has uh, has heirloom uh, apples that you can pick up down there. They do a wonderful cider. Um, but it's, I want to say that I really respect the work of people like uh, Leslie Cumming and T Tim Seabrook down at Five Star and Marilyn and Steve at the Apple Farm, who basically kept this alive for all of us. Because once you taste one of those apples, again, you begin to see the world differently uh, because you say, well, well, why would I ever buy that other stuff? Uh, <laughs> because it's, it's just really wonderful. And I also wanted to uh, say uh, thank you to Maggie from Rockland because um, there's also a book that many of you might find interesting called The Apples of Maine that was a master's thesis done at U University of Maine in 1911 by Charles Bradford. It's been reissued by George Stilfen, uh, and it's basically a list of all the apples with stories about them in each area. They tell, for example, uh, we tracked um, down some apple varieties locally through that book, um, and John Bunker actually tracked down one that's from Lemoyne, from an individual farm in Lemoyne called the Marlboro apple. Um, and uh, people who have questions about apple varieties can feel free to contact me. We've tried to um, see what we can do for identifying them, but 
it really is a wonderful resource. And I can't emphasize enough uh, what Josh is saying. As you think about food heritage, remind yourself that in Maine, in 100 years ago, people had apples from their own orchards from July to July. The red astrakhan and other apples came in the third week of July, and they had just finished, many of them, an apple that was called the July 4th apple. So they had apples that could keep them going all year round uh, without uh, anything but just their root cellars. Let's take another call. Uh, you can participate as well in this conversation about food heritage in Down East Maine by calling one 866 625-9378. We have a caller on the line. Please identify yourself by your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, my name is Bert, and I live in Ellsworth, and I live in a, on a property that has apple trees that um, they're on their very last legs, but I suspect that they might be well over 100 years old, and I was wondering... Uh, in that kind of condition that's still still giving off a few apples. And I was wondering, uh, is there anything that can be done to, like, take a graph on it? Or how do I identify what kind of tree it is? Great questions. Let's let's keep you on the line for a minute, Bert, and uh, see if uh, Todd Little-Siebold from College Atlantic can help you answer that question. So, Bert, we've uh, done some workshops up at the college's Beach Hill Farm on restoring old orchards, and we have an uh, orchard there with about 40, 45 trees that are probably as old as your trees. Uh, and this year, after pruning them and, and feeding them a little bit, they gave us almost perfect fruit, organically managed, no, no spray, no nothing. Um, so they can, they can be brought back. It's easy to take cyan wood and propagate those trees, um, and I'd be happy to come out and look at your trees and see see what uh, what they look like. But the great thing about those trees is uh, they can, you know, they often can survive another 50 or 60 years, giving you uh, enough food for you to, you know, eat throughout the throughout the winter if you'd like. But I'd be happy to to take a look. Always interested in Ellsworth. There were 84 orchards in Ellsworth, if you can believe that, in, in 1880. Uh, today we have one. Mm. So uh, Todd is at College of Atlantic, and you can contact him through that. So thanks for your call, Bert. The, the, the tree that is here, it's uh, basically a stump, <laughs> and it's uh, all split up. I mean, I can't imagine that you I think you'd have to take something off the tree and try to plant it. Uh, you know, it's so far gone. Well, we'll see. We'll see. It's a great question, and I think there are probably other homeowners, landowners that uh, have similar questions. So thanks very much for your call. Um, you can reach us, one 625 9378 if you've got questions or comments as we talk about celebrating food heritage. Uh, Todd, you got more to say about the kind of the biology of, of apple trees and how that, how that works, of, of putting things together? Yeah, I just wanted to make one comment about old trees is as long as it's alive, uh, you can bring it back. Mm. Uh, they won't produce, but many, many of the trees, I think, are remarkable. They'll have a tiny, tiny piece of their cadmium, uh, cambium, and they'll be alive producing fruit. So I often tell people, um, if you can keep it alive, keep it alive, because that could be, you know, a, a unique tree that's the last one of its variety. Often they're they're very... Um, they're very resilient. So you've mentioned pruning is one um, mm -hmm. step, and then um, the, the grafting process. Tell yeah. a little bit about that, and we'll then begin to think about what the future might hold. Yeah. Um, just very quickly, uh, so Bert's tree, you could take a small piece of it, what's called cyan wood, 
which is about maybe two inches of it, and you can actually graft it onto a new tree, and then that will become the very tree. It's actually a process of cloning. That will become the very variety that was on the previous tree, and that's the way that a lot of the um, trees that we are very rare have been uh, propagated as you continue to graft them. I mean, that's one thing that I think many people don't know is that every um, seed in an apple tree is unique uh, genetically. And so if you plant a seed from a Macintosh, you don't get a Macintosh. Mm. So the only way that you get a Macintosh is by cutting a piece off of a Macintosh and putting it onto a rootstock. Um, and that's how all of the varieties that we get um, are are propagated is through. So, w- do you imagine when settlers came here, um, they were bringing um, pieces of of apple wood? So, um, we were actually just talking about this in my class yesterday. Uh, it's very likely they brought small trees, they brought cyan wood, and they brought seeds. The seeds were primarily for c- cider apples. They didn't particularly care about what what, and they would use those seeds for rootstock. And then if they found a particularly interesting thing, they would put the cyan wood onto it. Um, so they brought a little bit of everything. And in Maine, very early on, we have uh, varieties that are um, coming in from, from Massachusetts, from Quebec, uh, and being propagated in that way. I was just reading yesterday, actually, in, the, in that 1911 thesis, uh, in 1822 from Maine, a, a thousand bushels of apples um, being shipped out through Hallowell to New Orleans. So that means they were grafting apples and shipping them, you know, nationally and internationally as, as early as the 1820s. Mm-hmm. So Maine was really connected, and it was known for very, very high-quality fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as you think about um, what's next, I think we do have another call, so we'll, we'll take some of your comments and then continue. Um, uh, What's next in terms of your collaboration? Where, where do you want to take this? Um, you've, you've kind of used the apple as, as one example of food heritage. Josh, where would you like to take it? Well, I think uh, the, the, to continue the model mm. of, of using research, um, using uh, the connections with Healthy Acadia to sort of get in and educate students, and then collaboratively holding some sort of a large uh, activity. It might be apples. Um, I jokingly say that, you know, we know at one point John Black's planted, you know, some 250 cabbage plants. So <laughs> cabbage maybe, festival. Yeah, so, I mean, I can envision a big cabbage <laughs> festival as being kind of fun, but let's uh, take another that's phone not call. quite as charismatic as the apple. But. <laughs> let's take another phone call and see what our listeners are thinking. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, go ahead. Perhaps. Um, yes, not go ahead. the grafting, the the... the, the the certainty that when you plant an apple seed, you're not going to get the same thing that the uh, tree, its parent was. Uh, and I wonder from that, it's something that's always confused me. People will find an apple on their old apple tree or in the woods, and they'll take it to you know an expert and uh, want to be advised as to what kind of an apple it is, where... To me, it seems it might just as easily be a totally new, uh, uh, newly discovered apple form that wasn't like any other apple had ever been. Hmm. Uh, and I don't. I I wonder. You know how? It's it's never really made sense to me trying to identify. I, I've got a bunch of old apples on on in my woods here that used to be an orchard. Uh, I I don't know whether they're original trees or not. Some have good apples on them. Some don't have good apples on them. I don't know what kind of apples they are. 
you know, I know them as good apples and, and uh, apples where the skin is too tough and apples that are sour and things like this. Uh, I, I, I wonder this, about this pedigree thing. Great. Thanks for your question this morning. Todd? So uh, one of the really interesting things about that is that um, one of, when we're doing identification, we almost always ask the first question is, do you know if you have a grafted tree? So if you have trees that are sort of planted in an orchard setting, you know that somebody actually planted those trees and grafted them. Often you're looking for whether it's their lines or that sort of stuff. So there are a lot, hundreds of thousands of seedling trees in Maine that are not traditional varieties. They were never named. But for example, in, in the property that we were just hearing about, it's probably very likely that those were grafted um, that they were taken care of. Often you're looking for whether they've been pruned, that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, one of the things I think is really interesting about the diversity of apples is that people, um, the sour apple would be good in March or April. April. So many of them are unpalatable when you first uh, harvest them, but by February, March, April, May, June, um, they may be really, really good. And I think that uh, you have to remember as well that uh, there are probably 9,000 varieties that were once named in Maine uh, that we don't know what they look like. We don't know where they were. Um, and then, you know, there are, so that one of the things I always tell people is the most important thing is not what it's named is, is it a good apple? Do you like it? <laughs> right. And that's what this listener was saying. They know the good ones. Josh? Yeah, so that question that he had also was a question I had and I was puzzled about. And so then, you know, I was educated by walking around apple orchards and old farms with Todd and, and, and I've had the pleasure of doing that a couple of different times. Uh, and there's a great example. If you want to learn about how do you figure out if it's a, if it's a, it's a, it's a tree that just happened to be planted um, from a loose, a, 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 a loose seed somewhere or something. So animal ate an apple and seed came out and got planted kind of thing. Well, so it's interesting. So we're looking at this one tree at Woodlawn and Todd said, ah, that, that's been a grafted tree. And I said, well, how do you tell? And you can, as soon as, he, as soon as you see it, you start looking at these old trees and see if you can see the graft line. Mm -hmm. So is, has the tree been grafted? In the case of one of the tree at Woodlawn, uh, which anyone can come up and see, I encourage you to do that, um, there's actually, you can see a couple different graft lines. So that tree at Woodlawn actually has two different kinds of heirloom apples on it. One tree, two apples. That's amazing. Just amazing. Katie, where would you like to see this collaborative go in the future in terms of especially involving young people? Um, well, Healthy Acadia is certainly going to continue um, working um, in the schools. I hope next year to work with more schools in Hancock County. I know that Regina's um, been extremely well received at the schools that she's been working in Washington County and would We'll definitely be continuing to do that um, and we'd love to continue this fabulous um, collaboration between the three organizations I think it could go in a number of directions as Josh mentioned um, and you know we're very open to exploring that and you know figuring out how we can um, you know connect that hopefully to um, school kitchens as, as that's our ultimate goal to really have the school cafeterias purchasing these foods um, and and serving them to all of the kids at lunchtime um, and so hopefully we'll be able to continue to connect in that way. Todd, how about you? How about how would you like to involve your students um, in this kind of collaborative? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the impulses for me in doing this work has been the ability, for example, to work with uh, 
Katie and Regina to help students understand what their local history looks like. So working with the atlases and census data, helping develop curriculum units. We have a curriculum class taught by uh, Bonnie Tai that's going to do some curriculum units on that sort of stuff. Um, I want to continue doing research on Woodlawn uh, and their production. They have just an extraordinary historical collection um, that allows us to look at what people were eating and buying in Down East Maine from 1797 to 18, all through the 19th century into the 20th century. Uh, and it's fascinating because, in fact, uh, I live in the old Joseph Morrison house, uh, the old Pioneer Farm in Ellsworth, and Josh's collections at Woodlawn tell me exactly what that family was buying week to week. Hmm. So we can, I think, find out some really interesting things. The other thing I'm interested in long run in terms of this is looking at farming and fishing, uh, the fisheries industry, alewives, uh, all the different aspects of this I think are really, really very interesting. Um, and I think it's an exciting uh, collaboration. And Josh, you've, you've talked about using history to understand that, <laughs> but also to think about the future. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately, that's our kind of goal is to uh, allow people to envision a future based on what they've learned from the past. Great. Great. Well, thanks to all of you for being with us this morning. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. And that support is important. Uh, please give the station a call and pledge your support. one 800 6 Four three six two seven three. This is also Veterans Day, and I want to just um, acknowledge um, the the sacrifice that many veterans have have made. Uh, Tom Brokaw uses that phrase. Um, it's it's another one percent of people who have served in in our armed services. So thank you for for your service. Join us from ten to eleven on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests as we talked about food heritage, Joshua Torrance from the Woodlawn Museum, Katie Friedman from Healthy Acadia, and also her colleague Regina Grobogak in Washington County, and Todd Little-Siebold from College of Atlantic. Thanks to our underwriters, thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and sto stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org.